Good morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We have been, for over a year now, worshiping our way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Acts of the Apostles. Today we're in Acts chapter 24. But to start, before we do anything else, let's pray and seek help from the Lord. Father, we come to you boldly in the name of Jesus, knowing that you have said in your word that you look to the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. So I pray that you would humble us. You would lead us into deeper humility as we sit under the authority of your word. I pray that you would give us a contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart that we know you will not despise. Pray that you will help us to tremble, to tremble with rejoicing as we see your holiness and your grace as it is revealed to us in the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So come and feed us from your word now, Holy Spirit, and we pray that all the glory would be to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. As we've already celebrated today, this is the the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent is is a season where we get to remember the incarnation of our Lord. When, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one in the history of the church has defended that truth, the truth of the incarnation, more than a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was a church father, a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th century. And in every generation, the gospel comes under assault. The attacks look different, but every generation, in every generation, the gospel comes under assault. And in every generation, it always comes out unscathed. In the 4th century, the opponents to the gospel were the Arians. They taught that Christ was not God, that he was this great, almost angelic being, but he was not God. He was not eternal. He was, he was not equal with the Creator. Now, Athanasius, he earned himself a nickname, Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the world. That's because it seemed like the entire world, even the church, stood against him. That the whole world had slipped into this heresy. And Athanasius and just a few others stood for for orthodoxy. Through his efforts and through many, many years, the truth of Christ's deity, that he is fully God and Fully man, that truth was defended and that truth was restored to 
the church. But let me ask you, how do you respond when you feel contra mundum, when you feel against the world, or that the world is against you? How do you respond when your faith is put on trial? Or when your deepest convictions are challenged? How do you respond? Well, in Acts chapter 24, Paul's faith is put on trial. He's already been on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. But now he is put on trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And this is a significant event. Felix was the the Roman governor of Judea, the exact same government position as Pontius Pilate, who crucified our Lord. So Paul's life literally hangs in the balance. But it's even bigger than that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul gives his perspective on his imprisonment. He says, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he knows that he's not just defending himself. He's defending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a leader in the church, and so he is representing the Christian faith as a whole. This isn't just Paul on trial. This is Christianity on trial. So this morning... I want to ask a question of our passage. How should we respond when our convictions are challenged? When our faith is put on trial, how should we respond? We see two very different examples of this in Paul's response in his public trial before Felix. That's the first 21 verses. And then in Felix's response, we're in some private conversations. Paul challenges him in verses 22 through 27. But first, let's look at Paul's response in verses 1 through 21. And let's first read the first nine verses as we see Paul's accusers bringing their charges against him. Luke writes, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. It is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. (coughs) The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So the high priest Ananias comes to accuse Paul, and he has brought uh, this, this guy named Tertullus. Luke calls him a spokesman. We might call him the best prosecuting attorney money could buy in Jerusalem. And, and you just hear him schmoozing in, in verses 2 through 
Four, oh, most excellent, Felix. Hear us in your great kindness. You've done so much for our nation, brought so much peace, made so many reforms. It's a little known fact that in Greek, the name Tertullus means brown noser. He is just sucking up. None of what he said was true. Okay, the Jews hated Felix. They were very hostile with him. And, you know, Felix, yeah, he had brought peace. He had done that through brutality and violence. And he had made reforms, every one of them, to benefit himself, to line his own pockets, a character trait that we'll see come up later in this chapter. So this was nothing but flattery. And once that flattery was over, he got out got on to his actual accusations. And you can sum up the charges against Paul like this, that Paul and the Christian faith, the Christian community, they're anti-Roman and anti-Jewish. That pretty much sums up the essence of what they're accusing Paul of. They're saying that he is anti-Roman and anti-Jewish. So Paul, and by extension, Christianity, was accused of being an anti-Roman Plague. As we find this man a plague, a disease, a pestilence, an empire-wide pandemic. And that's because everywhere Paul goes, he stirs up riots. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And calling them a sect, kind of trying to indicate that they're like a, a cult of religious extremists. They're zealots. They're probably violent maybe revolutionary. And Paul isn't merely their leader, he's their ringleader. This just has such negative overtones. Now to a Roman like Felix, it sounds like Paul and the Christians are upsetting the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the social fabric that held the empire together. So they're being painted as very, very dangerous to society. Paul is also accused of being anti-Jewish, saying that he was trying to profane the temple. Now, this is the charge that the Jews actually cared about. It's also the charge that the Romans couldn't care less about. It never stuck, but they kept trying to bring this against Paul. Now, you probably won't get accused of being anti-Roman or anti-Jewish. But you might get accused of being anti-science or anti-women, or anti-reason. You might get labeled as Islamophobic, or homophobic, or transphobic. Your faith in Jesus might actually be thought of as a plague, as a disease, as a detriment to society. So how will you respond? How should you respond when your convictions are challenged? Well, let's see how Paul responds as he represents himself in court with these words, starting at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. (laughs) Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul says in verse 10 that he cheerfully makes his defense. That word defense is is the Greek word apologia, where we get our word apologetics. Paul in, in chapter 24 is a living example of the words that Peter would write later in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. There's that same word. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that apologetic mandate applies to all of us. We are all called to be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense for the hope that is in us, to speak up. When our faith in Christ and our Christian convictions come under attack. Okay? And we take this very seriously as a church. We want to equip you to know how to do this. This Sunday is the last Sunday of two equipping classes on Sunday mornings. We have how to talk about Jesus, which is about how to defend and, and talk about Christianity in a post-Christian culture. And Mama Bear Apologetics, where, where moms are being trained on how to even raise up their kids to do this. So if you want to grow in this area of how do I defend my faith, come and talk to any of us as elders. We would love to equip you, point you to resources that can help you. But let's see how Paul makes his defense. Because in his defense, Paul completely dismantles his accuser's charges. In essence, he says, you think I'm anti-Roman? I wasn't stirring up any riots. Now, riots happened, but Paul didn't start them. (laughs) I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. It's pretty hard to start a violent revolution in less than two weeks. You think the way of Jesus is is a sect? It's a cult? I plead guilty to following the way of Jesus. He's like, that's true. But it's not a sect. It's the very fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. It's not a little offshoot of Judaism. It's Judaism brought to completion. And you think I'm anti-Jewish. I brought alms to the Jewish nation. I brought a large charitable donation to help the poor in Jerusalem. And the whole time I was ceremonially purified according to the law of Moses. I'm not anti-Jewish. And then he says, you're bringing these accusations against me. The eyewitnesses aren't even here. So according to both God's law and Roman law and Roman jurisprudence, this case should just be thrown out. 
And so he declares his innocence. He says, they can't prove these charges against me. I have a clear conscience before God and man. They can only get me on one thing. I said, I'm on trial for the resurrection, which they believe. They agree with me on that. So I am innocent of these charges. Paul utterly decimated his accuser's attack. He gave an airtight defense of both himself and the Christian faith. You may be thinking, yeah, that's amazing that Paul did that. That's awesome. That defense was, was impressive, but I could never do that. All right, Paul was one of a kind. I don't have his intellect or his personality or his charisma or his wit or his eloquence. I mean, when people question me about my faith, I freeze. I choke up. I don't know what to say. Or I do say something, and I'm just tripping over my words. So I'm happy that Paul could powerfully defend the gospel, but I can't. That's not for me. Now, if you're thinking that, I want to give you some good news. You're probably right. (laughs) You're probably right. You're probably not like Paul. Neither am I. Most of us don't have the brains or the guts of a man like Paul. I know some of you are super, super smart. (laughs) But for the rest of us, we're not that clever. We're not that quick on our feet. We're not that gutsy. We're not that impressive. And that's okay. You don't need to be as intelligent or as quick-witted as Paul. Jesus doesn't require that of you. But you can have the same response as Paul, the same attitude as Paul. Did you notice verse 10 when we read the passage earlier? Verse 10 is very easy to skim over. But it contains what I believe is the secret to Paul's response. And it contains a real point of tension. So look at the last part of verse 10 with me. Paul says, I cheerfully make my defense. I cheerfully make my defense. Now this word cheerful, it's a beautiful word. On the one hand, it kind of carries the meaning of joy and gladness and cheerfulness. And on the other, it connotes courage and boldness and confidence. And it brings those concepts together. So for our time this morning, I want to define this word as joyful confidence. That Paul made his defense before Felix with joyful confidence. And we need joyful apologetics. Not just intelligent apologetics, but joyful apologetics. Because joy itself is a great apologetic. A glad heart is contagious. Joy draws people in. If you're excited about something, other people want to know more about it. They want to come hear about it. So you can know all the apologetic arguments backwards and forwards, but if the joy of the Lord isn't your strength... Your arguments lose their potency. And you might not know how to answer every objection that someone might bring up against your faith. And that's okay. You can still exude the joy of your salvation. If someone could could ask you a really hard question, 
about Christianity? And you can just say, that's a great question. I have no clue. I'll look into it. But for now, let me just tell you, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is so good. (laughs) Joy is a great apologetic. Now, do you want to know what, what doesn't make the gospel seem believable to the world? Pessimistic, gloomy, miserable Christianity. As someone who's just miserable and beating themselves up all the time and saying, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? <laughs> you can get in in this misery too. <laughs> On the other hand, joyfully confident Christianity, that adorns the gospel. That makes Jesus look like the greatest, most satisfying treasure in all of existence. Joy is a great apologetic. But what if that's not you? What if you don't feel joyfully confident? What if you're not cheerful? What if you are a little bit gloomy? I mean, normally when I'm put on the defense, I get defensive. But Paul doesn't. Right? Paul is in jail. His life is threatened. And somehow he's living out his words in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So do you see the tension? How can Paul say this? How can he respond this way? Because the word that comes to mind when my faith comes under attack to describe me is not cheerful. It's not joyfully confident. I mean, we're in the season of Advent, right? This is the season of joy. We just sang joy to the world, right? We're supposed to be joyful. But what if it's not true? What if you know that the holidays means you're going to end up spending time with that one family member who is antagonistic to your faith in Christ? You're going to have to sit across the dining room table from that atheist uncle of yours who's always just poking, poking, poking at your convictions. Again, I don't know about you, but cheerfulness is not my first response in that moment. So how did Paul get here? How did he get to the place in his life where he can say with all sincerity from the heart, I cheerfully make my defense? Because he wasn't putting on a fake smile. This was real, solid joy. How did he get here? How can we get to that same place? I think the secret to Paul's joy is found in the reality of the gospel itself. I think we could say it like this. When our faith comes under attack, when our convictions are challenged, we can respond with joyful confidence because the gospel is undefeatable. We can respond with joyful confidence, not because of ourselves, but because the gospel is undefeatable. Paul knows that the good news of Jesus, the message of his death and his resurrection, it is perfectly defensible on its own. That Jesus doesn't need Paul to eloquently defend him, and he doesn't need you. If Paul had failed to respond to his accusers, 
the gospel wouldn't have suffered. It wouldn't have been damaged. The Christian faith wouldn't have been threatened. No, the message of Christ Jesus is defensible and invincible and unbreakable and impenetrable and unassailable. No one can defeat it. No one can conquer it. No one can vanquish it. No one can snuff it out. No one and nothing in all creation can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going forth victoriously. The Christian faith will stand up to any interrogation. Let people ask questions. That's a good thing. Let them ask about the infant in a manger. Let them ask about the Jewish carpenter who was crucified on a Roman cross. Let them ask about the empty tomb. And you yourself, you can ask questions about your faith. You're not going to mess it up. The gospel is unbreakable. Even you can't break it. The gospel is the very power of God unto salvation. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are breakable clay pots. The gospel is unbreakable treasure. Did you notice in Paul's defense how much he emphasized the hope of the resurrection? And think back, right? They tried to silence Jesus by killing him, but God raised him from the dead. When the God who raises the dead commissions you to preach his gospel, do you think anyone can stop it? When the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Who can stand against you? The Christian faith has come under attack time and time again, and every single time it has emerged the victor. Let's think back to Athanasius. The whole world was against him. By and large, the church was against him. Yet he defended the truth of God's word with boldness. How did he do that? How did he respond? Well, in his writings, he actually gives us a clue into how he defended the gospel when the whole world was against him. Listen to this. Athanasius wrote, Let us be courageous and rejoice always. Do you see it? That's joyful confidence. Let us be courageous and rejoice always. Let us consider and lay to heart that while the Lord is with us, our foes can do us no hurt. But if they see us rejoicing in the Lord, contemplating the bliss of the future, that's the hope of the resurrection, mindful of the Lord, deeming all things in his hand, they are ashamed and turn backwards. Did you hear that? Athanasius knew he wasn't defending his his opinions. No, he was defending the very truth of God so he could rejoice with courage. And he said that that rejoicing is actually what led to his opponents being embarrassed and turning back in retreat. He said this happens when they see us rejoicing in the Lord. Joy leads to victory. 
as Christians, our battle cry should be rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Joy is one of the Christian's most formidable weapons. So when you come under pressure for your convictions that are based on God's word, you can have joyful confidence because those convictions are built on the impenetrable fortress of the word of God and the gospel of Christ. It is utterly unassailable. So what should you do if you're not experiencing this joy? Soak in the gospel. Soak in it. Rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Remind yourself every day. Remind yourself 20 times a day if you need to about the great salvation that has been secured for you through the Redeemer. Spend time in prayer. Spending time in prayer is spending time with Jesus, the most joyful being in the universe. Spend time with other believers. Isolation is the ultimate killjoy. That's why we come together for growth group. It's a time where we are trying to fan into flame one another's joy in the Lord. Men, come on Tuesday Mornings, we're starting a study on Philippians, a letter of joy and contentment. Get with other Christians. And never forget that the gospel of your salvation is undefeatable. So when your faith comes under attack, you can open your mouth. In faith, you can open your mouth by the power of the Holy Spirit you can speak. You can speak out of the overflow of the joy of your salvation and glorify the Lord Jesus. So in Paul's travel for Felix, the gospel successfully stood the test under intense scrutiny. But now God is going to flip the tables. Paul's convictions have been challenged before Felix but now Felix's convictions will be challenged by Paul. Paul has been on trial before Felix. But now Felix is going to be put on trial before Jesus. So let's see how Felix responds in this private conversation he has with Paul. Starting at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. See, Paul needed his friends. After some day, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Luke tells us that Felix had a Jewish wife 
And he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He knew about Christianity. So he put the outcome of Paul's trial on pause until the tribune arrived, and that lasted about two years. So for Paul, these were two years of ministry because Felix would come to Paul one-on-one to talk about Christ, his questions, his curiosity, and, and Paul was happy to talk with him. Verse 24 says that Paul spoke to him about faith in Christ Jesus, and verse 25 shows his threefold message. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What he was doing here was he was showing Felix the bad news so he could see his need for the good news. He was exposing Felix's sin so he could introduce him to the Savior. He was challenging Felix's beliefs and convictions. So first, he reasoned about righteousness. That, that God's law is the standard of right and wrong, of good and evil. And this righteous God requires perfect righteousness from us. So Felix, and so you here, do you want to be accepted by God? It's simple. Just be 100% morally blameless from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. No mistakes. No screw-ups, no do-overs. The problem is, though, self-control, or our lack of it. We can't control our desires, our passions, our, our sinful cravings. And Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, so that includes all of us. We have all broken God's law. We've all failed to live up to His standards. Therefore, there is a coming judgment. God is the lawgiver, and we are lawbreakers, so he has appointed a day where he will set things right. A day of judgment. And on that great day, if you are found outside of Christ, you will be found guilty in your sin. And you will receive an eternal death penalty. Righteousness. Self-control. The coming judgment. This is some really bad news. But it's meant to prepare us for the good news. So yes, we are unrighteous. But Jesus offers to cancel the debt of our sin and to clothe us in his perfect righteousness. Yes, we are slaves to our sin. But Jesus offers us freedom. We are dead in our sin. And Jesus offers us life. We are condemned and under judgment, but Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. On the cross, he became our sin. He became a curse, and he bore the judgment against us so that there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to the shelter and refuge of Christ's saving blood. The bad news was meant to show Felix and us our need for the good news of Jesus, for faith in Christ Jesus. And I use this illustration a lot when I go and talk to the guys in the jail. But I say, imagine that you're asleep one night, you're sleeping on the second uh, story of a house, and it's like 3 a.m., and you hear some rocks being thrown at your window. And you open it up, 
And there I am. You're like, what? What are you doing, man? You know, it's 3 a.m. I'd say, hey, jump. I'll catch you. I got good news. You'd think I was out of my mind. Right? You'd be like, I knew there was something wrong with that guy. <laughs> it's crazy. But what if I started off that sentence saying, the house is on fire. There's no way out. Jump and I'll catch you. Doesn't sound so crazy now, right? That's because the bad news turns good news into glorious news. The bad news shows us how good the good news really is. And verse 25 says that in response to hearing this, to hearing God's law and gospel, Felix was alarmed. He was frightened. He trembled. In other words, he had an emotional response. At some level, he experienced conviction over his sin. But he didn't put his faith in Jesus. He didn't actually come to the point of putting his trust in Jesus and following him. Listen to Felix's response, the last half of verse 25. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. He told Paul to go away. Paul had pushed Felix outside of his comfort zone. And he didn't like it. So now he's pushing Paul away. And the real problem here, it isn't that he's rejecting Paul. Paul is only a vessel. Paul is only a mouthpiece. Felix is resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, look, the house is on fire. You can jump. And Felix is going back to bed while the house burns down around him. This went on for a period of two years. And he would often send for Paul and talk with him. But the whole time, his motives were self-serving. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix was hoping to get something out of it. He was hoping for a bribe. He was waiting to see if maybe this Christian thing will pay out. It'll benefit him in some way. And when it didn't, he left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. The Jews were more profitable than the Christians. So he abandons Paul and he abandons Jesus himself. Felix couldn't surrender control of his life. He couldn't surrender his own autonomy, his own love of self in submission to Jesus, and it cost him eternally. He tried to gain the whole world, and he lost his soul in the process. He had an opportunity to gain eternal treasure in Christ, and yet he traded it for the temporary trinkets of this world. Trinkets like power and prestige, and finances, and comfort. 
We as Christians can be tempted by those very same trinkets, right? Paul, he could have easily raised some money and given a bribe to Felix and been released. The temptation was there. The ability to do that was there, and yet he resisted. But if you're here and you're skeptical of Christianity, or maybe you're considering following Jesus in faith and obedience, maybe you've attended this church for weeks or months or even years, I want to ask you, do you see yourself in the story of Felix? Is your response like his response? Maybe you've had an emotional response to hearing the gospel. Maybe you've trembled, but you haven't actually put your faith in Jesus. When you've been convicted of your sin, have you pushed back and hardened your heart? Maybe you've pushed away people who challenge you. Have you been waiting for Jesus to solve all of your problems and meet your list of demands before you'll follow him? Are you unwilling to give up control of your own life and let Jesus be your Lord and master? If that's you, I appeal to you and I beg you, come to Christ. Come to him now. Felix's life was a tragedy. It's a story of someone who came so close to eternal life. Someone who had so many opportunities to find salvation and he missed it. Don't let your life become a tragedy. Don't come so close and yet still remain outside the kingdom. Today, Jesus is calling you to come to him in faith. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to him in faith and you will be saved. The contrast between Paul and Felix couldn't be more stark. Paul's deepest convictions were challenged in a public trial where his very life was on the line. And he responded with joy. But how should Felix have responded? In the same way. With joy. Paul was inviting him to discover a greater joy than Felix could have ever imagined. That's what coming to faith in Jesus is. Psalm 1611 says this, you teach me the paths of life. So becoming a Christian is getting on this path. Living the Christian life is walking this path. You teach me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Felix walked away from. Don't walk away from it. Don't turn down such an extravagant offer. Rather, respond like King Jesus calls you to in Psalm 2, 
Verse 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son as pay homage to him. Submit your life to Jesus. Felix trembled, but he didn't rejoice with trembling. He was still trying to find his joy in money, in a bribe, and he turned his back on fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But that joy is available to every single one of you right now. If you haven't believed in Christ, it's available to you for the very first time. And if you have believed in Christ, it is available to you in ever-increasing measures. So are you discouraged? Are you dry and cold? Are you weak and frail? Are you anxious and fearful? Are you easily defensive? Are you lacking in joy? I encourage you again, soak in the gospel. Rest in the gospel. It is undefeatable. It is unstoppable. Christ said he will build his church. He will advance his kingdom. He will spread his gospel and the gates of hell don't stand a chance at stopping it. So Christian, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. I'll say it again in case you missed it. I'll say it again in case you believe it's too good to be true. Rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've shown us in your word. We thank you for the wonders that are here. Lord, I pray that you would lead people in this room right now or over the live stream who don't know you to find their joy in Jesus now as they come to him in faith and repentance. I pray for the saints that you will lead us into deeper and deeper experiences of joy, into fresh joy as we celebrate the greatness and the glory of Jesus. So come and help us to make a joyful noise to you as we sing your praises. And we ask that you would do this for the glory of your great name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.